are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. When we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. Our focus is on creating activities and programming to enhance business, adding to your long-term profitability and success. We truly wish to see the entire bicycle industry continue to thrive and all within to find a genuine work-life balance, lasting friendships, and the comfort in a truly connected industry. Supporting each other, our hopes that the Bicycle Retail Radio podcast allows a spot for connectivity, advancement, and engagement through sharing a bit of our authentic self. The NBDA is a non-for-profit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join at nbda.com. Today's guest, a personal friend of mine, is Rick Snyder, shop owner of Mike's Bike Shop in New Brunswick, Canada. A 2021 Bicycle Retailer of Excellence, both People's Choice and Silver Level winner, Mike's Bike Shop has been winning this prestigious award for many years. One of many accolades, the shop has also won Canadian Bicycle Magazine's Bike Shop of the Year Atlantic Region many times over. In the bike business for over 40 years, Rick has learned over the years what is successful and what's not. From their headquarters in New Brunswick, they are serving all of the maritime provinces and beyond, as well as a huge online business. Rick has built one big destination store. Rick would tell you the success of Mike's Bike Shop is also thanks to its 25 plus employees and the trust he and his staff build through relationships with customers is what keeps his clients coming back. This is a conversation not to miss, and I'm so looking forward to it. Before we begin, we always like to offer a sincere note of thanks to our association members, and today I'd like to call out Smart Etailing for their continued support of the MBDA and retailers at large. Have you heard of Smart Etailing's free Buy Local Now service? Buy Local Now is a real-time product locating technology provided by Smart Etailing that connects ready-to-buy consumers on brand websites with local stocking retailers. It's pretty neat. You can learn more about this and turn your website into a powerful bicycle retail sales platform at smartetailing.com. All right. So without further ado, welcome, Rick, to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for joining me today. It's completely my pleasure, Heather. It's an honor to be asked to join you. I have so much I want to get in over the next hour or so. But just looking back on 2021, we're recording in early January, just three, three days into the new year. I mean, how was 2021? Did you continue to see a surge in sales, new cyclists, and just business overall? Yeah, totally. 2021 was an, another incredible year, although much different than 2020, certainly much more tumultuous. You know, it was different because you know, every single bike rolling in the door wasn't pre-sold. Like, for example, right now we have 800 bikes in stock. They may not be exactly what we dream we had, you know, I guess if I had my way, they'd all, they'd be all fat bikes, but instead zero are fat bikes. It was a great year. We're super, super pleased with how things went. Every conversation I've had with you, I just, it's like a smile. I, I honestly feel like you're like family. I've reached out to you on several cases, you know, instances just to say, Rick, what do you think about this? Rick, could I ask you a question? And you've been wonderful. So just 
myself reflecting on 2021, I think about the relationships I've developed and I'm super thankful for you and your support of my efforts personally at the NBDA. I hate to hear, you know, about the challenging supply that we're in and, you know, hearing about fat bikes. I hate to hear, but it's a very real thing that we're going through right now. Thanks for being here again and for sharing where you've been. And this conversation today, I know is going to prove really insightful for many retailers as we're just, you know, at the MBDA looking to truly connect us and learn from each other. Congratulations. The Brie Excellence Award and the People's Choice Selection, getting ready for our podcast today. I was looking back through the People's Choice and this is customers of yours writing genuine comments, feedback on why they love your store, voting for your store. Congratulations. How did that feel to be awarded the People's Choice? That's pretty great, right? It's an incredible honor to win every single award, but your award is certainly kind of up there in rare air that I think uh, any dealer would be so completely honored to win. So thank you so much. We, we're lucky to have the incredible clients that we do, and we're lucky to have you in place doing what you do for us. We mailed the plaque. I didn't see you at the Big Year Show. We were under the travel restrictions, so we couldn't see you at the show, but we did mail the plaque up. Do you have a space at the store that you keep all these awards? We sure do. We have, a, we have a great wall out uh, in the store where our customers can enjoy it, where our staff can enjoy it. You know, we're extremely proud of these awards. We work really hard for them, and it's a little bit of recognition for everybody to see and share. Rick, I always love to start our podcast with a dive into the person on the podcast. So I went to your website last night, mikesbikeshop.ca, for anyone listening, and there's a great About Us section. The website's really dynamic. I would suggest everyone check it out. The About Us section refers to you as a 10-year-old who loved his BMX bike. Did you always want to open a bicycle store? How did you find the bicycle industry? I really love biking. My family moved to New Brunswick in 1979. I was in grade six and just up the street from where I went to school was bike shop. So I started hanging out there every day at lunchtime and after school. And, uh, you know, eventually they were so kind to let me start sweeping the floors and empty the garbage and grew from there. I, I can remember like having to take my paycheck and ask my teacher to hold it when I'm in grade eight, you know, funny memories like that. So that's it. I just started working at that bike shop and I, I worked there for 25 years before I bought my bike shop. Wow. I remember visiting my local shop and you say that they were, you know, you were lucky enough that they let you sweep the floors, but that was a real thing, right? Just being able to be part and be involved. It was like, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when not even a teenager, you're like telling your parents, you got to go to work, you know, it's a pretty, pretty cool feeling. It is cool. So you and your wife, Heather bought Mike's bike shop 17 years ago. Were you looking for a shop? You know, how did you find Mike's bike shop? Well, it's interesting. You know, I worked at the other bike shop across town for 25 years and the owner decided it was time for him to retire. So uh, we were working to buy buy them out with our accountants and our lawyers. But it was a, it was a bit of a struggle. It wasn't an, an easy process. And one morning I was having breakfast and the phone rang and it was the owner of Mike's Bike Shop calling to say, hey, you know, things aren't going so well for us. I hear you're looking to buy your place. Why don't you come over and buy us out? And I said, no, you know, I got 25 years invested in here. I think I'm, I think I'm good. And we hung up and he called back five minutes later and said, listen, why don't you let me buy you lunch and at least let you know what I got to offer. So uh, we found, you know, a secret restaurant and so we could hide in the corner and talk all about it without being seen. And I'd say we both knew halfway through the first lunch that it was going to work out. Was there an owner named Mike? <laughs> 
Uh, there certainly was. Mike was the founder of Mike's Bike Shop over 40 years ago in a little seaside village just uh, 20 minutes from here. And he'd built it into a nice little business, moved it into Dieppe. And then when it was time for him to go on, he had sold out to the person who that I bought it from. I always tell the story. People always ask about Mike's. And I say, you know, when we bought Mike's Bike Shop, Heather and I couldn't afford to change the name on the sign. Of course, now that we can, it'd just be easier to change my name. Yeah, right. It's got the name. So yeah. it just goes. There you so go. I'm always curious to know, I know your staff is, is rather large, but what is your day-to-day role at the store? Are you on the floor? Do you most of the time in the office or how do you navigate that? Well, certainly all the above, Heather. You know, my true passion is on the sales floor, selling bikes and spending time with my clients. That's my real love. But, you know, as business has grown, it does require me to spend some time in the office steering the ship, I like to say. But I found a really great compromise. I put a little stand-up desk down on the main floor. So sometimes when I need to do computer work, I can be down there and still see customers coming and going and talking and be involved in uh, conversations. And customers just like to see me down there. So uh, that way I can kind of get both done. And when I'm doing important stuff like this podcast, I come lock myself upstairs. <laughs> he's, he's locked upstairs. I love that. You know, we were talking before we started recording earlier, just about the podcast that we've done and the people who have come on before. And I always ask this question because I feel like it is important to be on the floor. It is important to interact with your staff, to see your customers. And I like to hear that you kind of split time between both. I think that that's really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the original location, just to give our listeners an idea, was 3,500 square foot. And so within 10 years... You have a custom-built 16,000-square-foot location. Congratulations, Rick. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I mentioned in the bio you service so many areas. And so a question that I have is, you know, instead of opening up multiple stores, smaller stores, let's say, you decided to go with one bigger store. What was the thought behind that? I always felt, Heather, that one big, beautiful store was a much more of a destination for our clients than a number of small stores. Uh, not that that's not a great plan that a lot of stores have decided to do. But for me, and I want to be a place, like I'm a worker, I'm here every day, and I want to be a place where I'm here with all my staff, with all my customers every day. So we have one big store. You know, We have a lot of stuff in it. This is where we service all of our customers. We don't have to worry about offsite warehousing. We don't have to worry about transporting product from store to store. Everything's here under one roof. Yeah, there's a lot of positives and negatives. I seeing the images of the store, retailers should definitely go online and beautiful building. And you mentioned in your retailer excellence application that the building was designed to be a bike shop. And I'm just thinking of what an amazing process that must have been for you and your wife to go through. I mean, probably a trying process, but at the same time, here you are with just an empty, like the sky's the limit for what you can envision. What did you have in your mind as you were going into this project that were important to you? We had a number of things. Like when we set out, you know, our little store was right in downtown and we were really locked. We couldn't really grow. We didn't have a lot of opportunity to to do much else. So, you know, I had set little things like I want to make sure I had five acres of space. So we went where we could buy five acres of land. And that ended up being a little, little bit outside of town. But of course, now we're really in the center of uptown. And, you know, we are what a lot of people say, two streets over from Mike's Bike Shop. We've really become a destination up here. We have lots of parking. We have lots of staff parking. We build a big, beautiful lunchroom. 
But some of the stuff, like when we're building the store, some of the things that we really looked at were we wanted to wow customers. We want, when people walked in, we wanted people to say, wow, this is it. If we can't find what we want here, we're not going to be able to find it. So we're able to display over 500 bikes on our showroom floor. One thing that was very important to me was to have a very dedicated sales department and a dedicated service department. You know, I always say, when you take your car in for an oil change, don't go see your salesperson. You go to see your service advisor. So we're really set up that way. So they're specialized. The salespeople deal with sales. The service people deal with service. So a lot of things like that, we were really able to fine tune and make it really the way my vision needed it to be. Rick, are you ever downstairs on the sales floor and, you know, watching a customer come in for the first time and just looking at their face? I mean, you must see that wow expression, right? All the time, every day, Heather, every day people come in and especially the first hires, people who come in and go, oh my goodness, this is not what I expected out of our corner bike shop. We love that term. We love that feel of customer bike shop. We like to be still just your local bike shop. We like to make sure you understand that we're not a chain. We're a locally owned store. Heather and I own it and all the money stays here in Greater Moncton. When you were moving from the previous location to your new location, how long did that time frame take? How long did it take? Like, was it a couple of year project designing and executing the, the new location? Yeah. yeah, it was a couple of years, a lot of work. We planned the original show. And it's an interesting story because when we started out, I said, oh, you know, I have a great architect. We're going to be able to plan the floor, the floor plan, the layout. You know, after kind of like the first day, him and I looked at each other and said, Whew, you know, I might be a great architect. And I said, I might be a great bicycle salesman, but, you know, designing a bike store is a lot more to it than I thought. We quickly went out and hired Brian Hawkins from Fixture Lab. Uh, who was able to jump in and mostly remotely. And then, you know, at the end came down and designed a beautiful, beautiful store for us. And, you know, I look back at some of the original plans the architect and I had done and said, oh my God, it's a good thing we didn't do that. Brian is great. His brain, he's just so spot on. And he comes up with these really just ideas that are next level. Rick, an important question here. How did you know it was time to expand? I'm thinking of retailers who are asking, you know, they come with like, should we be looking at more space? Should we think about another location? Is there anything that for you is a pivotal point where you're like, we need to go bigger? Totally. We have the numbers and everything that support it. But for us, we started moving stuff outside every day. You know, it's like, okay, well, we got too many bikes. So let's put 50 bikes outside and lock them up. Let's move racks and repairs outside. And, you know, we really started looking saying, wow, the amount of time we have invested in getting this little store set up with the product outside and then reversing it at the end of the day. That for us was the big thing. Like, okay, we've really, really outgrown this location. We either need to scale business back or grow business forward. Yeah. And so many retailers right now are I mean, with the incredible boom we've had, you know, finding themselves maybe with not enough space. So it's definitely a question. So really great to be able to ask you that, because I think that that'll help some people who are thinking like, is it time? You talked about the store, you know, being able to really separate the service and the sales and make it clear. So speaking in terms of layout of the store, when we're talking about a 16,000 square foot, are you using signage or other ways to departmentalize the interior to help people when they come in? (laughs) 
We do. We have all kinds of signage around the store, but we really work more on a kind of a one-on-one co-shopping format here. So we don't leave a lot of time for clients to kind of wander around on their own to find their way. We we're well-staffed every day and we like to have people around to help clients through their co-shopping experience, making the right decisions, finding what they need. Since the new space opened, have you been changing up the interior, you know, over the course of the years, I'm thinking of like the traditional center cash and wrap area that we used to have that many, you know, maybe some shops still do have, but I know some of our members of our P2 group, we've been talking about getting away from that central location and doing smaller cash and wrap areas. Have you been continually updating the interior of the store and the layout as as it's going on? Absolutely. We have Heather. One thing that's unique with us is, you know, we live in the snow belt. We have a full winter and we switch into snow products this time of the year. So kind of every spring and fall, part of the store gets a complete redo as we change seasons product. And yeah, we're always kind of renovating. We're always kind of adjusting, fixing, redoing, improving, but been in here seven years. So no huge, huge projects yet. All right. So in terms of the service area, the service is such an integral part of our industry for our bicycle retailer profitability. And I know you're a Shimano service center and you've said that service is the key to your business and that the customer experience is vital. Can you share anything that you feel has elevated your service area that maybe other retailers could learn from or focus on? Totally. That's really easy, Heather. A super important thing to me is to be specialized in your position. You know, in our store, service advisors do service advising. They typically don't sell. They typically don't do repairs. They're there to meet you, bring the bike or skis in out of your car, take a look at them, advise you on what the product needs, schedule it. That's their job. And they're really, really, really good at it. It's super important to empower them to make the right decisions. You know, my staff doesn't have to run and ask somebody if they can cover this under warranty. Those guys, they're there to give the best customer service. And then a really important thing to me is having the right tools, the right equipment for people to do the jobs. So those are some real keys to me to making a service center successful. Yeah, the service center is, like I said, such a big part of the retail operation. And I think we could probably do a whole podcast just focused on, you know, setting up your service center and training your staff and how you keep your staff engaged and totally. I always love the quote, you know, what if I train them and they leave? But on the other hand, what if I don't and they stay? How important training is. Everybody has to be trained and well prepared. So Speaking of that, then let's go to your staff. You always speak so highly of your team. And we have retailers, they often ask about staff training and and employee meetings. Can you give us some insights how to keep the staff trained, engaged? And I mean, they even feel like family. I mean, I told you, I feel like I'm family with you. You just have this natural quality. (laughs) God bless you. Well, you are family. Staff communication, that's such a huge thing for us. We're all about it. Every morning before work, we have an entire staff huddle. Everybody from the marketplaces, shipping, receiving, everybody comes down. We have a 15 minute, 10 to 15 minute huddle, talk about what's new, what's exciting, experiential things. And then every day at four o'clock, we have a service department only huddle to kind of figure out how the work orders are going. We have a huge full staff meeting once a month. We have a service staff meeting once a month. We're all about that. We're all about staff training. 
you know, we're a Trek dealer. We do Trek University. We do Shimano Aztec. We do all that sorts of stuff. We pay the staff to do it. But most importantly, it's a requirement for every position here. You know, if you're a salesperson, you're required to be a complete Trek University. If you're a service department, you're required to finish Shimano Aztec. And we let them do it when it's quiet here. Training, that's where it's at. Are you taking part in those huddles? Are you there if you're physically in the store that day and, and part of that? Absolutely. I, I think it's so important. And also when we do stuff like that, you know, I feel like some retailers think it's like a chore. Like my staff doesn't want to do a meeting every day. They're going to think I'm crazy. But I, I think the opposite. I think it makes them feel part of something larger, right? And a hundred percent. And, you know, in every meeting, every huddle, somebody leads it, not necessarily me, but everybody around the circle gets a chance to contribute. You know, if they had a really good or really bad experience they want to share, or, you know, if the shipper receiver says, hey, I got three pallets of giant bikes coming in today, you know, everybody gets their turn to pitch in and be included. And you said that it's mandatory for them to go through some of your brand training do you ever get pushback on that? I mean, I feel like nowadays people come in so educated that we need to be the knowledge. Our staff members need to be at the top of the knowledge. Does anyone give you pushback or are they actually excited to do those courses? So both, 100%. You know, we always kind of get a little bit of pushback, especially from new staff, like, oh, seriously, it's just required. You know, it's in our employee handbook and that's it. We pick two big dates. January 31st and August 31st, those two dates. So they have a little bit of slack time. You know, if it's in April and May and it's super busy, there's not a lot of time to do that. But we have two big dates that be completed on every year. And uh, it's just fun, really. Like it's, it's what your whole life is if you work here. So why not be an expert on it? So, uh, and then you see the water cooler talk in the morning about like, oh my God, did you see that module on this? And they're excited. And that influences the others to enjoy Yeah. I mean, all right, well, let's then carry this forward talking about transparency. You know, I've had some experts advise that it's important to share your goals with your staff. Like it might be your sales goals and it helps them know what you want and it often betters your results. Do you do that? Like what are your thoughts around that? I sure do. That is something that P2 group taught me really, like everything else in my life. P2 taught me. Yeah. We talk about our sales goal daily in our morning huddle. And we use retail toolkit for a lot of our information. And it has our daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly goals in it. And that's accessible to all of our staff to see. So using that data, you can actually break it down with, I think, sales and service, right? So you can really give clear pointed information to each department. Absolutely. It's super important. You know, it's easy to say, okay, sales are 50,000 today and there's 10 of us. So I kind of got to drudge out $5,000 in sales to hold up my part of the deal. You want people to be included in that. You want people to understand that some of the weight is on their shoulders to understand that every client walking through is extremely important. There's so many different hats to wear as an, an owner of a bicycle retail store. So you have to be good at the financials, good with customers, good at ordering and managing inventory and supply and good at team building and staff development and managing. Rick, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, is, there, is there one that you love more than the other? Or? Yes, sure. There's some that I love more than others. But Heather, the truth of the matter is if you surround yourself with smart people, the best people you can, it just makes all of it so much easier because yeah, I don't have to, to be the know-it-all and everything. I can say, hey, 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 you know, give me your input, help me with this. And they do. And I, I just have the best people around me to do that every day. So it just makes life a lot easier. I'm so thankful for this time to chat with you. So I have some maybe difficult questions, but 
just answer them from your, you know, what you're doing your best. You know, many retailers right now, Rick, are looking for like this crystal ball to help them predict how much to buy. If you don't mind sharing like your secret, I guess, how are you navigating and managing like open to buy and all these back orders? There's so many question marks right now. Any advice you could give? Well, first off, I'm one of them. I look every day under my desk for a crystal ball, but there never seems to be one. So we're all in the same boat, you know, trying to muddle our way through and make the best decisions. But here's what I see. Everybody, including me, right now over the last 18 months is using this knee-jerk reaction to, to buy product. And it doesn't work because the product doesn't come in timely anyway in most cases. And then when it does come in, is it what you actually want? What you ordered 18 months ago is it actually what you wanted. So people have to be so, so careful of, you really need to understand what your numbers are on a weekly and monthly, yearly basis and kind of plan like, here's what it looks like it's going to come in in this time frame. Is it way too much? You know, I, a lot of, I know we hear from a lot of our vendors saying like, wow, some people have way too much stuff in their, in their carts, too much stuff on back order. And it seems like, oh, you know, I'd die for that to come in tomorrow. So just leave it, just leave it. But there are going to be a lot of retailers in a mess when things start to level out. And people go, oh, my God, they told me I can't cancel these bikes. I normally want 1,000. I have 3,000 bikes coming in this year. How's this going to work? Especially so many vendors, we hear this, you know, firm order term or non-cancelable order term. So I think people really need to understand where their business is what's needed by the month and by the year and use those ETAs to go, yeah, okay, this number makes sense or no, this number does not make sense and we need to make some changes. And I know it sounds weird to say, well, I'm going to cancel some bikes coming in in June, but if the number that the vendor has shifted to you, and that's the thing is because they shift so often, if that number doesn't make sense, it's up to you to make these changes, up to you. You know, Nobody else is going to pay the bills for you when those bikes come in. So it's super important to be smart, be on your back orders. And on the other hand, of course, you don't want to end up in 2023 with no bikes. So you just need to be watching those ETAs monthly so carefully so you don't find yourself in trouble and that you're still able to stay open. Yeah, it's definitely something, a conversation that everyone, I mean, I get text messages from retailers. What are we going to do? What's supply? I heard that it's going to continue bad. And some consumers are canceling orders. Others are still putting them in. It you know, I feel like I'm telling people the same thing. Just be on top of things and really, really monitor your situation. But I think the biggest thing, Heather, that I can tell dealers is you need to understand what your numbers are. You need to understand on a month-by-month basis how many bikes you want that month. And if the vendors, you know, change 300 bikes from that you thought would come in January to get you through the winter, and now they're all coming in June, do you want all those bikes in June? And I know, Rick, you use Retail Toolkit. If a retailer doesn't have that, would you advise they go like look at their point of sale data from past year sales to understand what bikes they need? To totally. Have? A couple of things is look at the history. Like you need to know how many bikes do you sell in June? Okay, we're, we're in a bike boom, so things might grow a little bit more. So you can plan your own schedule, but you can reach out to your vendors. They'll send you an ETA by the, by month. And, you know, you just need to look at, you know, here's my three bike vendors. Here's many, here's how many bikes are coming in June. Does this number make sense? Yeah. I was talking to Dave DeKaiser and he, he's like, some people have like 4,000 bikes on back order, but they only sell like 
80 bikes. He's like, it doesn't make sense. That's exactly what I mean. So, you know, what's that 80 bike dealer going to do when 500 show up? Yeah, yeah. Nobody knows your bike shop better than you, but the people who might come the closest are other bike shop owners who are facing the same day-to-day and long-term challenges that you are. Joining a P2 group is one of the most affordable ways to take a deep dive into your business alongside other bike shop owners who are experts in what you do. Reach out today so we can tell you more about how a P2 group can make a difference in your business. This past year, many retailers embraced online sales, you know, either shipping or picking up in store. I was doing a little search on the internet about you, Rick, and I noticed that there was an article that you had you had commented that online sales has already been something that you were focused on before the COVID and the bike boom. But any tips for retailers looking to grow online sales? It's really easy. You know, these days, there are so many places to buy online. You need to have your processes in place so that it's easy for your customer. Because, you know, if it's not click, 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 easy peasy, they need to start calling the store to figure stuff out, they're going somewhere else. So make sure your processes are in place. Make sure that when an order comes in, you know, you have a dedicated person who's receiving that order. You know, they're collecting the product. You know, where's it going? So that when the customer's in to pick it up, everybody knows where that product is. All those sorts of processes are so important. And if you're on the marketplace business, you really need to be aware of what your costs are because there's so many hidden costs from mm-hmm. buying bags and boxes to Amazon and eBay's cut and monthly fees and shipping expenses. That, you know, I've talked to so many dealers who said like, holy mac, I'm shipping 20 boxes a day, but I'm not making any money. And they have no idea what their net costs are and their net margin to find out they're losing money on stuff. Such so, a good point there, Rick. Like we think we're making money because we sell the pair of skis or the bike that's been hanging around forever. But at the end of the day, if you look at the employee's time and your shipping and your you know, seller fees or whatever else, you might be losing money. 100%. And the other biggest thing I could tell somebody is understand tax implications. That's a huge thing. I, if I had a dollar for every store that I've talked to said like, oh my God, I had no idea I had to collect full tax in Quebec. And now I owe $50,000 in back taxes. So that's a super important thing to involve your accountant, make sure that you know what your implications are, because you don't want to be paying somebody else's tax out of your pocket. You know, we want to make sure that the buyer's paying it. So make sure you have all that stuff set up. Yeah. And thinking on online sales, Rick, would you almost suggest that if a retailer is going to make a focus and say, okay, I really want to embrace online sales and get online, you can't just like put up a website and okay, I'm in, I'm in the business now, right? You actually need to invest in an employee and really go after it. You can't just, you know, go half in. hundred percent. Online business is great. If you got a handful of things you want to put on eBay and, and get rid of because it's old stock. But if you want to start doing real business, you need to be dedicated to it. You need to be building those processes that make customers repeat business where it's all about where those customers go. Hey, I bought from Mike's Bike Shop. It was super easy. That's what I'm going to buy again. Hey, neighbor, you want somebody to buy from a Buy from Mike's Bike Shop. They were great. You got to have like all your ducks in the world. Same with every part of business. You want to be successful. You need to be planned and prepared. 
So overall, do you feel like your online business is, is where you'd like it to be? Do you feel comfortable with where you're at and you've gotten to where you wanted to go? Are you still trying to grow that side of the business? Or? Oh, for sure. I, I think the sky's the limit. I think we have a wonderful business, but in my mind, we've only scratched the top of the surface and you know we have a lot of plans moving forward to continue to grow. Yeah, I guess this is a good time to like that elephant in the room, you know, direct to consumer or supplier own stores. Thoughts on how independent retailers can best position themselves in that regard? I'll read you my quote from this. I have only one word, scary. Yeah. Okay, two words, intimidating. You know, I've had this talk a million times with other retailers, you know, you, you work hard to build up a brand with a key partner vendor only to find out that they bought the store across from town. Now they're your biggest competitor. How does that work? I think what you have to have is you have to have a strong business. You have to make sure that you have built the foundation, your principles are good, so you have a strong business. And then most importantly, I think you need to partner with vendors who have your best interest in mind. These ones doing B2C and these ones opening stores across town, I think are not the ones that we need to be investing our business into. I won't mention any names, but we all know who they are. That's a tough pill to swallow in my mind. That could happen to me. Where would that lead me? Yeah. So make sure your key partners are in your corner and working with you. I love that. Exactly. I always, Heather, like to use the term partners. I like to think as my vendors as partners and my partners need to be working with me, not against me. Find those partners, find those distributors, find those vendors, find those brands whose morals align with yours. You and I have been communicating about Canada in general and the NBDA, which I will get into in a little bit here. But thinking you've you connected me with some distribution companies and some brands that you work with, and everyone spoke so highly of you. And what I got from those conversations was that they were your partners and were in your corner and working with you. So that speaks right to what you're saying. Thank you. Well, you learn, Heather, that you can pay anybody to say anything. You paid them. <laughs> it's funny. All right. So, Rick, let's flip over to social engagement. I mean, your Facebook follower list is over 27,000, and all your other social feeds are just growing. I mean, you have this great community. How are you excelling in social engagement? A lot of retailers struggle with getting, you know, even 10 new followers on Instagram or whatnot. Do you have a dedicated staff member in this department or? Sure. We have a wonderful marketing and social media manager, Amy. She is, again, one of the other absolute all-stars that I surround myself with. Makes me so much better. Amy just tries to keep it real, tries to be informative, tries to be funny, tries to touch all the bases. But most importantly, Heather, it's all about like having a great community that loves you and they want to be involved with you. They want to know, I love Mike's Bike Shop, so I want to know what they're saying on a day-to-day basis. And 27,000 didn't happen overnight, I'll tell you that. But you just keep those positive numbers going. And it's really just about having a wonderful community that we love. And I think they love us and they want to be involved with what we're doing. So when I Googled Mike's Bike Shop Canada, what comes up if you go to images is a really tremendous amount of wonderful photographs of you smiling with customers and your staff smiling and engaging with customers. I truly got the sense that like you are the face of Mike's Bike Shop. Like you're you're just smiling and you can tell that you love what you do. And I know people know you by name and you know your customers by name. So just 
how important in your mind is that? Like, I'm thinking of like building up people who want to shop with you and who want to follow you and want to engage with you on social media. How important do you think it is that the owner is interacting with customers as well? Well, it's super important because I, I think people see that. You know, that's what kind of gives the local and local business people like, I get it. This is just not a bunch of people in punching the clock. Like the owner's here. Like he cares about what's going on from open to close every day and just be involved. People love to have their handshake and people love, well, in the old days, people love to have their handshake. And now they love the elbow knocks. When you go out to dinner and you're having a great dinner and the manager chef comes over and pays some special attention to you, like, how are things? Great to see you in the restaurant tonight. How's your dinner? You guys are awesome. Who doesn't love that? Oh my God. I always turn to my kids. I'm like, that was the chef. The chef just, came. now my daughter's like, mom, I think he's the owner. <laughs> So, you know, it's the same with us, you know, and I really like to do that. You know, even if it's customers I'm not serving, I like to stick my nose in and say, hey, how's things going? How's the service? You guys finding what you're looking for? Customers love that. It, and when you read reviews, they often say that, like Rick, come over to say hi. Nice to see Rick's face on the sales floor. And for me, I do all my own radio commercials. I do all my own TV commercials. So the thing I hear the most is, oh, I hear your voice on the radio every day or, oh, what, honey, this is the guy from the TV commercials. And people just love that. It's just, it builds that community. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so relating to everything you're saying and you do, you know, you want to spend money in a local business and you want to support the people who are in your community, especially when they're good humans. And there's a lot of good humans in the bicycle industry. So if you're a retailer listening to this, go say hi to your customers, right? Like That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You're not building community sitting in the office. (laughs) So speaking of customers and our repeat customers, our community, I'm reflecting back to, you know, the trade shows that we did this year. We gave a lot of seminars around being customer centric and Part of that was capturing email addresses so you can have regular engagement with your customers and you can stay in contact. I'm imagining this is probably something you focus on as well. Yeah, this is a big, big, big one for me. Email collection has always been a huge, huge thing for me. It's something we measure every single week. We have a big sales board in the lunchroom where we write down a ton of KPIs and one of them every week is email collection. Every single person sales and service are measured on it. We have a benchmark of 85%. And when new staff come on, there's a specific module that we train on how to do email collection. If some staff slip a little, we do role playing, we work to build it up. But uh, right now, I think today's number, we'd be about 47,000 permission-based emails in our system. Wow. That's phenomenal. That's And so once we have, I mean, that's a huge number. I mean, but I'm just thinking once we have that, you can either direct your messages to a certain segmentation of those, which I don't know if you're doing. How are you connecting? Is there anything unique that you're using those email addresses for? Well, is it unique? Maybe not, but we're seldom sending out to that entire group. We segment down to service, men's, ladies, MTB, road, gravel, Something interesting that I do like to do is smaller categories, something really new and exciting comes in. Instead of you know going through our email vendor and sending out a big fancy, I just write a handwritten note to the whole group. Say, hey guys, it's Rick. Just got this in. I think you guys would love it. So we might and take a look. And you know, that's the sort of stuff that gets real buy-in when, when it's not like a mass email, but like a note from somebody who I know and I can come and sit and talk with them that says, hey, drop by, I got something I think you'd like to see. 
I would love to get a no. Uh, you know what I mean? That, how special does that make you feel, right? It's pretty cool. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, yeah, those are the sorts of things that I like to do. Like it's, it, you know, it's hard to send out 30,000 people to say, hey, we got new bikes and come see them. Doesn't do the same thing, but breaking emails into smaller groups is way more successful. I bought a bike and they're telling me what a new accessory they got on that would work great on my bike. People love that. That's the stuff that gets open. That's the stuff that gets returned on. You can tell when something's like a generic email more than it's when it's just for you. Thinking about connecting with community, you know, that's something we've been talking a lot about engaging your community. Is there anything that you're doing in that regard that other retailers could learn from? Yeah, totally. We love to connect with our community. And I think a lesson that a lot of dealers could learn is think outside the box. It doesn't have to be anything to do with cycling. We just found a vendor that had a bunch of jackets on closeout. We bought them all and donated them. Wow. We don't need pictures and stuff. That's a sort of community engagement that, that gets you the best advertising without telling a person. Those sorts of things like, you know, if there's a fundraiser breakfast, we take the whole staff out to it. People see us in our shop shirts and people are like, wow, look at that. That's my bike shop out building the community. Does not have to do anything with cycling. Just be in your community, be a presence, be aware, be a good person and do what you can. That, yeah. That's the best outreach money can buy. When you lead forward with like a good heart and you actually genuinely care, no matter if you're touching like donating jackets or doing something in the cycling realm, but people know that people talk, magic happens, right? <laughs> that's exactly. And that's the real magic. Not the, you know, Facebook, oh, look what they did on Facebook, you know, aren't they nice? It's the like the word of mouth, people are like, wow, look how kind they were. That's the real magic. And whether it generates back to a sale, just doing the right thing and being a good person is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. The industry has been talking about expanding the word cyclist. So I'm wondering, are you seeing new riders coming into the store and getting into the sport? I mean, you've been in the community for so long, but are you still seeing new people entering the sport? Heck yes. You know, I bet you we've seen more new, truly new customers in buying bikes in the last 18 months than we have in the last eight or 10 years. People are coming out of the woodwork. They're realizing what a wonderful sport cycling is and how easy it is. I can be socially distanced. I can do my own thing. I can go with a small group. I can go by myself. It's just, it's something that's easy to do. And there's not a lot of those options out there when half the world shut down. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, and we're talking as a whole about how to keep these new cyclists engaged with us, with the industry. Any thoughts as you're doing your marketing efforts or thinking about ways to invite people who have purchased from you in the past two years back into the store to continue to be engaged? Well, totally. There's there's a ton of stuff that we can do to, to get people back in the store. But I think it kind of goes beyond that. Getting people back in the store is easy to talk, you know, making sure that they're educated about the things that will make their new bike purchase fun, the things they need and the things that you expect that they want. But I think there's so many other things like trail accessibility and infrastructure and things like that, that as that grows, and we're really lucky here in our community that it's growing immensely, that's what really drives cycling and gets more and more people, gets the bikes out of the shed and gets them riding So Rick, you and I were chatting about the NBDA and that we're looking how we can best service Canadian retailers. And you've been great with connecting us with some brands and distribution companies so we can see what the differences are, what the needs are. From your standpoint, what do you think that Canadian retailers would like to see from the NBDA that we could offer there that might be different or unique from what we're doing in the U.S.? 
Well, I think a lot of what we would love to see is the same. You know, I think people really like to see the news, the updates that they hear from you. And we'd love to hear, see some of our Canadian vendors having their information shared through you. One thing that I mean personally, I think is, you know, that MBDA does have a lot of, or you're affiliated with a lot of great product that is not yet available in Canada that we would love to see expanded with your assistance into Canada. Yeah, like a rides program, perhaps, or some of the other things that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been the top of my list. Those sorts of things, you know, they need some help to expand. And that sort of thing would be uh, an incredible initiative for you. Not that I think you need more work. No, I, I look at I got the pen out. I'm taking it out. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you. I know I'm just jumping a little bit all around right now, but I'm thinking about your locations in Canada and we're talking about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and your city, I think is officially bilingual, right? So how are you navigating and ensuring your employees are able to communicate with customers with anyone who walks in the door? That's an incredibly important issue here, Heather. That's also very easy. You know, most of my staff is fully bilingual Mm -hmm. and most of our clients coming in are fully bilingual. We're completely able to serve them in the language they choose. But yes, French is very, very dominant in our city. People want to be spoken to in their first language. Yeah. I am an Anglophone. I only speak English. So if somebody comes in and says, I prefer to speak in French, we find one of the many staff who speak French for Super easy. Wow. I mean, there's so many things to juggle here. So I'm also thinking, as you're in Canada, any notable differences in working with suppliers or brand partners? Yeah, totally. Our model is completely different than the American model, where we buy all of our brands from distributors that sell multi, multi, multi brands, where you guys mostly buy directly from the manufacturer. So, you know, we would have a company that sells 30 or 40 different brands and you buy what you want. But the opportunity there is that sometimes, you know, we can work like an exclusive program. Like I want to buy this brand of helmets and I want to be the only dealer in my city that sells that helmet. Wow. Uh, That is completely different, right? Wow. We work with a heavy back order system, you know, because only one vendor sells it. If they don't have it in stock today, need to back order it. Where in the U.S., there's so many people that sell it, you know, hey, if this guy doesn't have it, call the next guy, call the next guy. So you're less likely jumping around probably because of that. You're more just focused on really building strong relationships. 100%. For most of our parts and accessories, we have two or three major, major partners that we support with almost all of our business. I mean, I'm just watching as COVID is still unfolding now with the new variant and this continued uncertainty around government-imposed restrictions. But what are your your eyes are on that, I'm sure? Yeah, whose eyes are not on it these days, right? With the new variant, things are a mess. We were always kind of the golden boy of the world out here in Eastern Canada. You know, we always had very few cases. Now we're having more cases in one day than we had in the first, second, and third wave combined. Yeah, we are seeing more restrictions. We're lucky here because we have a big store. Our maximum occupancy is really high. So even if they cut it by 50 or 75%, it has a much smaller effect on us than it does some of the smaller stores. But nonetheless, it's not fun. You know, nowadays, everybody knows somebody who's had or has COVID. And yeah, it's important to stay up to date and make sure that your staff is safe and your customers are safe and we're following protocol and getting through it the best we can. Yeah, just another thing to add to your list of bike shop owner responsibilities is navigating how to safely get us through. It never ends, right? (laughs) 
I hate to give a greatest lesson or single thing, but if I would, the greatest lesson you learned from dealing with a booming industry in short supply through COVID, you know, just your biggest takeaway, I guess. My biggest takeaway would be be prepared. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know what's coming today. So get up every morning, put your boots on and go to work and do your best and be kind to people. That'll get you further than anything else, I think. Yeah. Rick, you've been in the industry for, you know, over 40 years and I would consider you, you know, a staple of our industry. I, 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 told, I told someone that we were talking earlier today and they're like, oh, tell them I said, I, you know, people know you when I talk about you. So in your mind, you know, as an industry veteran, I would say, what would you like to see the collective industry focus on? Is there anything that stands out there? Yeah. Cycling infrastructure is, I think, the key to sustaining our industry. People can't buy bikes if it's not safe and accessible for them to ride. So I think joining your local organization who represents you in those topics is key to our business longevity. Yeah, I 100% agree. Getting getting more places for people to ride, showing people where to go and just making cycling continue to stay accessible is... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because, you know, if you sell a bike to somebody and they love the trails, they have a fun time, they're going to tell all their friends. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you sell them a bike and it sits in their garage because they've got no place to go, they're going to tell all their friends. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with this one, Rick. I know you're a past member of the MBDA P2 Profitability Project, and this is a program for retailers to work with other non-competing retailers, sharing data and helping each other find success. And, you know, we've been trying to grow that program here. We're on our fourth group now, Rick. We have a fourth group. Can you speak on the value that you've found in the program? Yes. In fact, I can. In the 41 years I've been in business, it is the number one thing I ever did for my business. That's huge. I can tell you this honestly, when I sit around and look around my business, at, you know, which I do all the time and evaluate like, hey, this works. Hey, this doesn't work. This makes us money. This doesn't make us money. I can tell you that the top five most successful things in my business all came from P2 Group. And that doesn't even count the lifelong friendship I made with all those guys. You know, they're my, still my dearest friends. And, you know, it says a lot for having somebody that you could honestly talk to about not only the highs, but the lows and the good parts and the bad parts and work out, help you work through things. Yeah, it's been amazing for me to see how these groups support each other and the ideas that come out of the conversations. And it's really a tremendous program. So thanks for letting me ask you. I always love to just hear from the source. If you want. Well, you know, typically, Heather, anybody who asks me that, my answer is, being privy to the best ideas of the best bicycle retailers in the world, you can't put a value. So we make up the Bicycle Retailer Excellence Program. We have this application we send out, you know, and it's a wonderful program. It takes a lot of time, a lot of dedication. We have many retailers who take part in it. And you've won the awards so many years back when it was America's Best Bike Shop as well. In your words, what are the traits that make up a Bicycle Retailer of Excellence? pride in your business, passion for cycling, and a love for your customers. When you have those three things, excellence follows. Like that is excellent, right? Yeah. 100%. 100%. You know, it's a short list. It's a short list of things that make you excellent. If you can live by those, th those three things every day, you're going to make a lot of customers happy. 
So, Rick, we're in 2022. We made it. <laughs> we're here. Oh, gosh, finally. <laughs> I love that we're friends on social media because, you know, you're liking my post. I'm watching your post. It's pretty fun. Like, what does 2022 hold? Like, personal or for the shop? Like, any plans? Personal. My beautiful wife and I love to travel. And our butts have been parked in these chairs for a couple of years. So, we would love to get back on an airplane. But I'm not sure when exactly that's going to happen. So, I got to throw this out there that personally, we just had our 25th wedding anniversary last week. So thank you, honey. <laughs> Business, not too much is going to change. No huge projects. Our focus for 2022, honestly, Heather, is for our foot to stay on the gas as hard as we possibly can. And while watching the state of the economy and like retail very, very closely and just kind of watching where things are going. But, you know, for us, it's just full throttle on through the pandemic. Yeah, every day, you know, wake up and go back with vigor, right? Right back into it and just keep rolling, right? A hundred percent. If you can't roll in every morning with a hundred percent in these times, I know times are tough, but business is good. You know, the pandemic has been good for the cycling industry. And if you, you need to go at it fresh every day with a smile on your face, saying, I want every customer to leave with a smile on their face. Well, maybe on the personal side, if you are able to travel, maybe we'll see you at the big gear show or something. That would be kind of cool, right? We would absolutely love that. There used to be so many P2 trips and inner bike shows and so much fun stuff. So as soon as travel becomes a little bit safer, I'll be the first one there with you. Well, I thank you so much for coming on Bicycle Retail Radio, for sharing your insight your retail location is just beautiful. For the listeners, please head over to their website and check it out. Rick, if people wanted to get in touch with you, if they had additional questions and just wanted to follow up, would you share contact information? Absolutely. You know, so they can call the store easily. They can go to the website and hit contact me. My link's on there, but it's just rick at mikesbikeshop.ca. Super easy. I'd love to hear from anybody who I could possibly help. Thank you, Rick. So it's mikesbikeshop.ca. That's the website or his email is rick at mikesbikeshop.ca. Rick, thank you again. I hope you have a nice night. I know I've kept you pretty late tonight, but it was worth it. You were amazing. Well, I loved every moment of it, Heather. Thank you so much. It was an honor for you to think of me to do this. I hope to see you again soon. All right. So that is it. I invite you to connect with me. Come on Bicycle Retail Radio, share your story with our listeners. If you head on over to the mbda.com website, there's lots of member networking meetings, virtual events, webinars coming up. Go ahead and register. If you're a first-time listener, check out our previous episodes of the podcast. You can do us a favor, leave a review. And if you like this episode, share it on your social feeds, share it with your community. Thank you. And now go be great. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.